0: Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance and science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is normally recorded in the presence of an online audience so you can join in ask questions or just participate in the discussion. But of course, we're figuring out this new platform so you'll have to follow us on social media to see how to get involved. And this week, we're going to talk to our first guest, uh, pro cyclist Jimmy Whelan and Cyrus is going to take the lead.
1: Right, so we've got a special treat for everyone today. Our first guest, Jimmy Whelan. He is a professional cyclist with EF Pro Cycling. EF Nippo, I think they're called now for the last three years. And has yeah got some pretty big results in that time and before that time. Former under-23 Tour of Flanders winner and under-23 Oceania road champion. So it's good to have Jimmy on board and today we're going to be discussing all things performance with him and a little bit about the structure behind his team as well. So firstly, Jimmy, how's the off-season going?
2: Yeah, morning guys. Uh, okay. Cheers to have me on. Yeah, the off-season's going pretty well. Uh, I haven't travelled anywhere. I haven't done anything exciting. I've just enjoyed, uh, yeah, just being in one place, taking it easy, sleeping in, Uh yeah, not doing much. The plan is no plan, yeah. basically, on the off season for me. You spend so much time and during the season bouncing around. It's nice just to do a three weeks where you're literally just not setting the alarm, waking up when you want, and uh, taking it easy. And the weather is still amazing uh, here in here in Spain. So uh, yeah, yeah, we did nice. talk about it's, that. I think in one of our earliest episodes
1: regarding rest weeks uh, or easy easy periods. It's often just the lack of structure that's the nice thing not necessarily the time off the bike just being able to chill out and uh make the most of not being stuck to that regular schedule that you are for most of the year during training but uh first yeah. first thing here we'll get into how you came into the sport so uh obviously was there doing the tour de burbs bunch in melbourne one of the best evening bunchies in the world i'd say and uh saw this bloke pop up in a in a bike shop kit and uh, he was suddenly smashing it up these climbs. And this would have been when you were in your early 20s that you sort of popped up on the cycling scene. And that's obviously quite late for cyclists to come into the sport. So when you uh, yeah picked up the bike, was high performance the immediate goal there? Or did you just think, oh, I'm doing this thing that's fun and I'm going to... Uh, just enjoy this while I can, or yeah, was it immediately? No, I want to want to be the best cyclist I possibly can and move up through the sport as fast as I can.
2: Yeah, I mean a bit of a bit of context before you saw me on the bike. Uh, before that, I was a runner up until the end of two thousand fifteen, uh, and then I got injured and uh, stopped running, and uh, did six to eight months of uh, being a normal twenty-year-old, enjoying the the young life partying and these things student life and then i found that uh i was pretty unfit and i wanted to feel fit again i wanted to be a sportsman so yeah my my old man uh actually got me on the bike and uh yeah i really enjoyed it and this is when you saw me on these melbourne bunch rides pretty fresh cycling and uh it all it all kicked off from there so initially all it was was just another way of endorphins uh and just feeling feeling healthy and then i realized uh doing a few of these bunch rides that I was, I was good enough to race at a local level. A few people helped me with that. Uh, I joined a club, joined a little local team and did the crits in Melbourne and then it just kicked off from there. Then you raced the, the National Road Series, uh, did a few of those. And uh, yeah, and then you do the Nationals and uh, yeah, kind of kicks off from there. And then you can kind of uh, yeah race at the domestic level. And then, Cyrus, so you know, we, we had the opportunity to race in Europe for the first time uh in 2018 yeah. i believe it was uh in the under 23 australian team and that's when we had the real opportunities yeah. to go pro yeah so when um
1: it's good that you brought um, up the the running there so obviously it was a big change to uh yeah taking off the running shoes and going across the cycling and it's something we see people do a lot of it's the classic origin story of the someone that pops up out of nowhere is really good runner got injured picked up a bike suddenly they're they're winning bike races everywhere. There's yeah countless pros that you can talk about that have followed a similar path. But for you, what were the big things that you could use from the performance side of running as you came across to cycling? And yeah, then maybe what were the the big differences there as well?
2: Well, the the good thing about running, uh, I was a middle distance runner. So my through school and then uh, my early university years, I was a fifteen hundred meter runner more or less. And so if you transfer that across the cycling, it's it's kind of like a punchy climber, I guess. And I still consider myself this type of rider. Um, but yeah, the good thing about running is it's uh, it makes you really versatile and uh, you become like a, a really robust athlete. So when you get across onto the bike, uh, yeah, you can really train quite hard. But the biggest issue with runners going into cycling often is knee injuries. The whole issue with running is that you can't train... As hard as you want to, because you get injured. But then you come across onto yeah. the bike, and see you yeah. get too excited because it's low impact. And in 2017, I was actually yeah, off the bike for five months because I, I got an injury. Yeah, I do
1: remember um, that. You were very
3: unhappy. I right? do no, if you
2: remember this, this.
3: I always say um, that all runners are are cyclists; they just haven't been injured yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Um, um, so, did you when you jumped across there? Were you doing all of that yourself, or at what point did you think I'm gonna Look for someone that can specialize in cycling and help me improve my cycling, in yeah, in ways that I didn't know were possible. Like, when did you start working with a coach or a mentor, or what? Yeah, were your processes there?
2: Um, so between the, the year of 2016, 2017, I was more or less doing it all by myself. I was also still running a lot too, so I was going through a bit of an identity crisis. I was like, do I drop the running? I was still running a little bit to maybe go back to running, but then I was also riding a lot, so I was doing maybe 20 hours a week on the bike but still running 60 70 k's a week did Uh, the
1: did the t word ever cross the mind triathlon
2: uh no i couldn't fathom (laughs) the idea of getting up and having to go to a pool at five o'clock in the morning so that was never going to happen (laughs) um yeah and uh yeah i mean i guess the The turning point was actually when uh, I was speaking to my parents, they could see that I didn't really know what I was doing with with my sporting life. And they were like, well, you got to choose one way or the other. And yeah, that's when I chose cycling. I dropped the running completely. And uh, yeah, all I did was for the first year, maybe 18 months, uh, it was all self-coached with the the guidance of a mate of mine and a coach, uh, Stephen Lane with HP Tech um, back in Melbourne. He was overlooking my training, but a lot of it was just bunch rides, crits, and riding out uh, out north in Melbourne. Uh, with the endurance rides, going for Strava's—that makes you pretty fit. If you, I think, looking back at it, uh, compared to my training now, that was probably the most time I spent above threshold. Even now in training, like that was the hardest I trained uh, back in 2016, 2017. Probably too hard.
1: Were you? Uh... Were you doing less volume then? I'd imagine though than what you you do nowadays.
2: Yeah, I was doing less volume. Uh, Just
1: yeah, high intensity
2: stuff. Yeah.
1: And yeah. the thing is, and we've sort of we discussed this a little bit last week, but if that's the kind of stuff you're training for, then the low volume, high intensity stuff, if you're you're training for short races, especially that is, that's going to put you in pretty good stead for them, and most of the domestic racing, that you'd see in Melbourne is criteriums or two-hour road races tops. So you can can really get a long way just off racing crits and doing some bunch rides here and there, which is why so many people can get to a good level in Melbourne just off, off that, working with themselves or just with a, a few other people to guide them on how to manage that.
3: And the right parents.
1: And the right parents helps as well. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. genetics. Um, yeah. And then another thing I wanted to touch on about uh, that rapid improvement is I remember when you came on racing Hawthorne, you were the guy with the huge calves and (laughs) like ginormous calves. And uh, yeah, just a fairly, a, a bit of a unit on the bike, just this massive, strong, see you next Tuesday. And then within about three months, you were winning up every climb on every bunch ride and being a real pain to ride next to as soon as the road started tilting upwards because you'd lost a fair bit of weight. So that's one thing I wanted to ask about how you managed that and whether you were getting any help from anyone else when you dropped all that weight to turn yourself in from just the the strong domestique style
2: rider to a, a really good climber. Yeah, I mean, I guess to explain the calves, that's because I was still running a lot. So, yeah, you need strong calves to run. So, I naturally don't have big calves, but thanks. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, I guess the weight loss wasn't actually uh, intentional as such. I wasn't trying to focus on weight loss. I was just riding my bike a lot and eating healthy. And uh, I started to, yeah, just be careful with what I was eating. Yeah, I stopped going out. I guess that helps a little bit. Started to be a bit more of a professional athlete. And, yeah, I also realized that uh, getting lighter helped with taking Strava's, um, which good sounds silly, but, uh, you know. Uh, it pointed you in the right direction, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I didn't do it to the point where I was, like, calorie counting at all. It just, it just happened. I think that's I a, good, when you're... a good one for the listeners, though,
1: is that you can lose weight without being 100% focused on losing weight. Like, those tips that you've got there is just – riding your bike a fair bit, sticking to the program and then eating well, um, doing the other, like yeah. taking out a few of those things, like whether it's, yeah, a few nights on the grog on weekends or, yeah, maybe you're just, yeah, having a few less desserts or Snickers bars here or there, but it's not it's not all about focusing on it 100% all of the time and obviously yeah you've managed to get yourself to the top level of the sport without having to focus on it it's it's happened naturally through the process of training right and eating right
2: yeah, yeah and, and just gonna, uh sorry you go.
3: i was gonna say i imagine some of it is going to be that, that transformation is going to be a little bit more dramatic i think depending on where the athlete is coming from as kind of the principle of specificity kind of sets in so if you have like a skier or you know i had an athlete that was a um, a concrete canoe racer so obviously there's a lot of upper body strength there or via r- rowers or anything like that so um he total transformation to what happened with his body over the few years that him and i were working together so um i could still see that happening to some extent with with a runner if you was you know if you had any kind of upper body strength from swinging your arms around or the calves you know all those things kind of kind of um dissolving into the background probably explains about that too I would, I would i'm guessing yeah
2: but also it's uh that period of when i stopped running and then i had the six to eight months of being a 20 year old mm-hmm. uh i was also i was also going to the gym a lot mm-hmm. uh so i think i would have been around by the time i actually started riding i said okay i'm gonna start riding now i'm enjoying my riding i would have been around 70 71 kilos mm-hmm. and then by the time it came to nationals in 2017 I would have been sixty-four kilos. Uh, that's good. So, yeah, but most of it was just losing my upper body muscle, but my legs still looked more or less the same. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. a yeah. Obviously, ten percent body body mass total. Like that's not just ten percent fat mass that's gone. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's important to note that you can make those big changes without having to count every calorie. Um, and yeah. Obviously, you were still performing well, which is the main thing there. Was it ever something you had to think about? Am I losing too much weight too quickly here? Or did it ever affect you negatively, losing that much weight in that period?
2: Uh, not really. And if it was affecting me neg- negatively, I didn't realize. and There was no one overlooking right. it. Yeah. So there was no one to put up. But I was still healthy and I was still happy. I was relaxed. I think the time when you start getting stressed over eating food and counting calories, that's when your relationship with food and just stress in general yeah. goes up. And I was so relaxed and enjoying my riding so much and just enjoying the athlete I was and enjoying riding with my mates, enjoying crits, bunch rides. It came, it came so easily. Like the gains I made during that period were the easiest gains I've ever made. And they were substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought me, they brought me across from a runner to a cyclist and a pretty amateur cyclist straight up to the higher domestic level within yeah. a year. Um, mm-hmm. This is, this is something that we
3: talked about last week with what is the the biggest component or the most important component of performance. And there's all of these things like nutrition and aerodynamics and that type of thing all kind of are a, a linchpin in there. But the engine is just it's kind of this overarching thing. And you're a really good example of what we were talking about last week because I was naming off all the other these athletes that come in from other sports and within two, three, four years they're at the top level. When you know you would have con- contrasting that, you could have juniors that have been in it since they were eleven or twelve and wanted nothing to be more than be- to become pro and had all kinds of uh, help along the way and just couldn't make it. So that was kind of my argument that how how big your engine is and how much how many watts you can put down is really really important but obviously you need a lot of other things but um like grit and all that kind of stuff and and um yeah i was watching some of your other interviews yes i could definitely see that there's some grit there i mean so i guess we touch on that real quick like do you feel like you're someone an athlete that has had a lot of grit or did you think you got more grit when you came into cycling it just kind of transferred over like the fitness transferred (laughs) over the grit transferred over what what do you think
2: um i've always been like naturally super motivated Mm -hmm. Uh so being super determined comes really easy. I've also had the support to enable this too. Uh I, I was able to live in my family home when I was uh younger, so I was able to really commit to my sport and have good support for my family, my friends and also my coaches. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of I had the freedom to, to put everything into my sport mm-hmm. which is a luxury. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh
1: the other thing uh I was gonna say, Jimmy, is obviously people see uh you burst through super quick, everything fell in place, but um, you did have a few pretty bad injuries in that time as well. Like, obviously, we talked about the knee before, but even before you went to the the World Tour scene, the 2018 season obviously started super well, but um, then you spent the back half of the year pretty much off the bike with different injuries the rest of the year then.
2: Yeah, I've had, uh, I've had my fair share of injuries over the years and I think that's a reflection of me being new to the sport and not having the skill asset initially to race a bike in Europe Um, but yeah I've always tried to make sure like I I could get even this year for example I've had uh, some pretty big injuries but I've always just stripped it back to a process and said okay I have this healing period then I have to get healthy again and then I have my training period and then I'm racing again I just try and keep it really simple and I'm also lucky that my body's been able to repair itself really quickly uh, and I've had no real hiccups or major complications with my recovery processes.
1: I think that's a super important skill to have though because uh, so many cyclists uh, have that first big injury or big crash and that's them done or that's them done at a higher level at least and they're often ones that you don't see because they haven't made it to the top level because they've had that sort of injury at a high amateur level and then yeah, it is hard to pick yourself back up when you go out for that first ride, or well, generally the first ride you feel okay peddling around, and then it's the next day that you go out after. Yeah, having to have the three weeks off or a month off because of an injury, and then go, oh, it's a long way back from here. Like I have to be racing against the top guys, and then now I've got all of this work to do again. Like each time it happens, you've got to do the same thing again.
2: Yeah, so in two thousand and seventeen. In April, I had my knee injury and I was out for four months. And that was a really difficult time. About the third month, yeah, I was obviously going through the same process I was going through when I was a runner.
1: What was the knee injury? Was it a tendonitis or...?
2: Yeah, tendonitis just right on the joint of the, the bottom of the kneecap. Yeah. Um, That's a pretty common one for cyclists. was super, super painful and super frustrating. Yep. Uh,
1: and how did you get past it? Did you have to change your bike fit
2: or...? have any surgery or the biggest issue was that I I still had a a runner's butt <laughs> so uh I wasn't really using my my glutes yeah um and so that put quite a bit of pressure through my through my knees uh and so I spent that period doing a lot of squats uh and doing a lot of just knee strengthening exercises so on the leg extension I would just hold it for maybe a minute with 35 kilos and I'd do that heaps in the gym Uh, And this was all supported through Ken Ballhouse uh, who had seen this injury before. Yeah. Adaptive human performance. And he helped me massively during that period. And I think without him, I probably wouldn't have fixed my knee fast enough. And if I didn't fix it at the rate that I did, I don't think I would have been ready for the summer of cycling in Australia after that injury. Um, So luckily I had that four month period, which was during the winter period. So there wasn't really much cycling going on in Oz and then, I had more or less eight weeks to go from zero fitness to getting ready yeah. to race at nationals. Uh, and I managed to do that.
1: That's pretty important to note that you got help there as well. Like actually got got the help from an expert um, when you're dealing with an issue like that, that you didn't know how to solve yourself necessarily. Um, so, yes. Moving yeah. on from that, so you've yeah obviously started, got all these results then in 2018, which got you the world tour contract. And then obviously when you move into a world tour team, you lose a lot of independence because we know that athletes at the top level tend to be micromanaged, or at least that's the idea that we have looking in from the outside. So when you moved up to that level, were you immediately, did you sort of lose all control of your own training and... How that was designed, or what was the the change when you jumped over to that team at the start of twenty nineteen?
2: Yeah, uh, I guess I'm kind of different to a lot of other athletes in the world tour in that I spent most of my developing years as cyclist just self coaching. So when I came across to to EF Pro Cycling, it was a big change, uh, but it was also a good change. Uh, finally, someone was professionally overlooking my. My training, but yeah, everything was flipped on its head. I really enjoyed the process of doing my own training, I found that really self motivating. So, I kind of had to reinvent myself as an athlete and uh accept that this was a new process and that this was the right process. So, you have to have faith in mm-hmm. the the support that you have around you as a world tour team. It's a super well oiled machine, and they've done it before. They've had young guys like me come in and uh they've turned them into success stories. So, it was uh, was there
1: any. Was there any moments where you really questioned it? Did you ever get given something or get prescribed any training or any intervention and think, oh, I don't know about this? I don't know if I want to do this? Or was it sort of blind faith from the get-go?
2: At, at first, yeah. I, was still, I still believed that what I was doing in Australia was correct. But when your boss says you have to do this, you're, you do this. But at that time, yeah. what I did in Australia was correct for my domestic racing. So the training I was doing there was super high intense, not much zone three work. So yeah, I guess the training I was doing in Oz was correct, but now I was in a completely new context racing against guys that were way, way better. And also in races that are way, way longer. And just the time that you spend in that kind of high zone three, low zone four was actually the zone that I never really trained in Australia. So I had to reinvent myself uh, as a rider in that regard. I had to become way more efficient.
1: And do when they were prescribing that was that as race simulation or were you being told why you're doing so much training in that zone? Cause obviously you as a climber, you're going to spend a lot of racing in that zone. Um, So for me as, as a coach hearing that that would be, if I was going to prescribe efforts in that zone, it would be more of a race simulation or to simulate the kind of riding you might be doing in a mountain stage of a stage race or grand tour. But, for you, were they telling you why they were giving you pres- uh, prescribing training in that zone, or was it just do this, don't ask questions?
2: It would be do this, uh, oh, yeah. and then if I was if I wanted to ask questions, I could, and they would explain. Uh, but it was all pretty straightforward. So you'd have your session, uh, and then underneath uh, in the description on Training Peaks, you'd have why they're doing this session, what the stimulus is. Uh, and often if you, if I'd asked my coach, he would be like, okay, in two weeks time, you have this race coming up, you have these climbs and this will set you up for this race. But the biggest thing for me in my first, in my first year as an pro, focusing on these climbs and these, like the physical side of things was actually not the important part. I had to learn how to race a bike in Europe. Yeah. Uh, so the, that was the biggest change, uh, Yeah. And that was my biggest gain was learning the skills, learning to relax. Yeah. Most of the time if I failed to ride the way I wanted to in a race was not because of my physical ability or the fact that I could ride at six watts per kilo. It was the fact that I was 60th wheel coming into a really small climb. And that's
1: something so many, so many people have no idea about because you just don't see it on TV because the, the motorbike camera shows the front of the race. You're not seeing all these guys that are, they're doing the same thing but too far back that they don't even feature in the highlights package at the end so i think that's a massive thing that people don't understand and it happens at each level yeah. as you step up like you would have seen even when you go and race a hawthorn crit in melbourne like this is just a for those that don't know, it's a Wednesday night criterium in Melbourne and it's the hardest circuit that there is in Melbourne just because there's a hairpin bend that goes into an uphill sprint each lap. But if you're coming out of that bend at 40th wheel as opposed to second wheel, that's a huge difference already. So for someone that's never ridden in a bunch to go there, all of a sudden that's a big step up. Whereas, yeah, as you step up each level, it's a bigger step again. And then obviously when you're getting to world tour and you're going and racing ardennes classics in your first year the stuff like flesh alone and and these kind of races where positioning is everything because the climbs in themselves if you look at like velon releases the power data and i'm sure everyone at home just looks at that and says "Oh, i can do that or i'm not that far off that but it's the fact that you're already at your max going into the climb because you've had to fight for position for the 5Ks before it and do so many little sprints to be in that position.
2: Yeah, one thing to say on top of that is, for example, like my 20-minute power is better than what it was in 2018 when I, before I went pro, but my ability to produce my my 20-minute power after these fighting for the wheels into the climbs and, you know, spending... 20 minutes before the 20 minutes, the super hard, super spiky uh, has improved a lot. And that's probably the biggest difference that I've seen over the last few years. Um, Yeah.
1: And are you training that specifically, or do you think that's just come from racing at that
2: level? It's really difficult to train this. Uh, Yeah. But uh, like uh, this year, for example, on a few training camps with the F, we would do like swap-offs, chop-offs coming into a climb. So we'd do 10 minutes of riding on a highway, uh, kind of stimulating that kind of punchy, kind of spiky effort uh, when you're fighting for the wheels into a climb and then you start your effort into the climb. So yep. that's one way of replicating it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's important. To, that's obviously something that many would overlook when they're just doing their 20-minute efforts is that you're not ever starting a 20-minute climb in a race at 120 heart rate and fresh and ready to, to go. You're already stressed out you're already heart rate's right up there yeah you you're bumping off shoulders with people and that's gonna really affect the power if you haven't trained anything like that or haven't experienced that before yeah but when you're doing those kind of simulations on a training camp who is prescribed like who's planning those out is it the directors or the coaches
2: so with EF, we have my personal coach Nate Wilson Uh, who's from Colorado and he lives here uh, more or less full-time in Girona and he coaches five or six guys within the team uh, but then he's also here full-time to to come to these training camps so we're in Andorra for example and he comes in the follow car he prescribes the the training for everyone
1: and is everyone in the team coached by a coach from EF or do people have external coaches
2: yeah um, so in EF it's all more or less in-house coaching yeah uh, so you have five or six coaches yep. that is, and then you spread out the 30 riders between those coaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my impression is that's how all
3: of the UCI or the world tour teams are going now. That's kind of the pressure. I think the UCI is putting on the teams to go that route. My,
2: my yeah, crux, thinking yeah. There?
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. You guys know that's correct. Anyone? But two, but two years, but two years ago, this was not the case in the team. Uh, riders had their own personal coaches, uh, mm-hmm. Even last year too, uh, but I think it's it's easier for the team to overlook all of the riders' training and uh, to make sure that they're getting ready for the races if they if it's all in in house.
1: Yeah, and the other reason I asked if it was in house is because then you minimise the conflict of interest. I know when I was doing the stagiaire with EF, that Jonathan Vorders, who's obviously the the manager of the whole show, he um was coaching a number of the riders and that's a big conflict of interest there. If you have the, the manager of the whole team uh, coaching some riders, cause he's, he's the one that makes the final calls on rosters and selections for races and also for the team each year mm-hmm. who gets a contract. And if he's coaching some riders, he's going to have a much stronger relationship with some rather than others. So to see that now all riders sort of have that in-house connection, I think is going to actually be better if the UCI is bringing that in as a blanket rule across each team. So you've got your, your coach there in Nate, who's obviously overseeing the rest. Who else are you working with on like a day-to-day basis out of the staff in the team or a week weekly basis?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I mostly work with, with Nate. uh, So, say I have a race coming up in a month, we'll talk about the race, uh, how, I, how I'm currently traveling, uh, do I need to train hard, am I already at the level I need to be and I actually just need to kind of yeah. let it simmer for a bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, most of my communication is with Nate Wilson. Um, and he's been a pretty exceptional coach this year. Uh, yeah, he's been really, really good. But like within my training peaks, for example, uh, I have, I'm just looking at it now, I have around 11 people that can see my training. And so all the coaches have all the access to all the different athletes' training data. Um, so they can have a good idea of what's going on. And then they also have all the directors, the sports directors who have access to my, to my training, and they will look at my training before, before the race that they will be at uh, to get an understanding of how I'm traveling, how the training's been going, where the weight's at, and all these things. And you also have the team nutritionist, and then you also have the team strength coach as well
1: have you ever had a sports director ask about your training like sort of suggest that you change your training or do they talk about the that with your coach instead of with you
2: i would never have a sports director question my training because then he's stepping on my coach's toes kind of thing um
1: yeah that's an important note because yeah just last week we were speaking about the the roles or it might have been two weeks ago um that was
3: last
2: week with
1: the yeah the formula one analogy there and it's important to note that yeah you the sports director is the coach if it's a team sport whereas the yeah the the coach in the sports director if you're talking about afl football for example they're the yeah the head coach that's making all the game plans and that kind of stuff but the yeah, the sports scientist in this instance is the actual coach in cycling. So I'm assuming Nate has some kind of sports science background. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: that's correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that that's really interesting. That the director is being careful not to yeah take over his role. Like he's letting the the coach in this instance go about setting out your training program, which I think is yeah really important thing is that he is the expert in in setting your training and having you prepared for these races the sports director is the expert in getting you to perform on race day and getting you to do your role for the team but it's good to see a structure where each each person is playing their role rather than one person doing absolutely everything yeah
3: Um, Um, i have a quick question sorry no go for it um do you prefer jim or james or jimmy uh jimmy it doesn't matter jimmy okay I had a grandpa. His name, Grandpa Jimmy. So, <laughs> um, Jimmy, I'd be my grandma yelling at him. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I have a question for you in the sense of like. So, so you mentioned Training Peaks. Can you kind of guide us through what you would enter into Training Peaks for in terms of metrics?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I can communicate with my coach, Nate Wilson. Uh, I mostly communicate in, with him personally on WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I want to communicate with him in a more public setting where the directors can also see uh I will leave comments on training peaks and he will also will also leave the chat on the training peaks mm-hmm. uh which is also important because if if i say uh if I have a like a target session for that week and I did it really well or I found it really hard i'll I'll leave a comment on that on training peaks so that the other directors can see how i'm feeling how i'm travelling uh just to make sure that they know where I'm at leading into the races, Uh and you have to be you have to be really honest. If you say, "Hey, I felt amazing in this session; I'm going really well," and then you come to the races and you're not going really well, and you actually feel quite flat, it's quite unprofessional. Yeah, uh,
1: you get found out. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
3: and yeah, and, and I with my athletes, I tell them like there's a I have a bare minimum of four things that they enter. I will see if I can remember them, but one of them is context in terms of just how do you felt about, you know, cause numbers are just numbers, but without context, it doesn't mean a lot, or the context can be very important to to add into that. Um, so yeah, that's really good, good, important to, to point that out. Just kind of going back to the, the, the less touchy feely type, the subjective stuff. And, um, I mean, is there other things besides heart heart rate and power that you guys upload? I mean, maybe some, rpe i mean it's still subjective but um you know other kind of analytical
1: devices you guys are big on heart rate variability aren't you uh, af now mm-hmm.
2: yeah we use uh we use the whoop platform mm-hmm. uh and that all goes up so all my sleeping data will go up onto training peaks it will show my hrv uh, and all these things which has been super interesting to follow as well um mm-hmm. and yeah it just keeps you accountable for your sleep and also if you're if you're getting selected for races and you're competing against other guys, the team wants to see that you're you're taking it seriously and you're getting all your mm-hmm. sleep and the, the body's healthy, the HRV is consistent. Yeah, it's, it's all these... They seem like somewhat insignificant numbers and small small details, but when you put them all together and then you look back at it and you're looking at when you're going well and when you're not, it all makes sense. But uh, it, it can get a bit tricky for me because I'm bouncing between Girona at sea level and then also Andorra, which is at 2,000 metres. So my numbers are fluctuating all the time, both in terms of HRV, sleep quality, uh, and then also power. uh, Yeah. Doing an FTP test at at altitude is completely different to doing it at sea level. Mm -hmm.
1: We'll um, touch on that because you made the choice this year or last year to base yourself part of the time in Andorra as well. Was it um, this year or last year?
2: Last Um, The end of 2019.
1: Yeah, so what, what was the rationale behind that? And do you think it's been a good decision
2: for your development? It's been probably the best decision I made. Here at EF, we don't do many team camps. So a lot of the time, guys are doing altitude camps that are self-supported. And these days, if you're not doing altitude, you kind of fall behind. Uh, it's yeah for me, for me personally, with my crashes this year, I think it's maybe halved the period between getting uh, going from the couch to getting race ready, I find that if I do a three-week block up at altitude, I can go from being super unfit, where I can't do three hundred and fifty watts for twenty minutes, and all of a sudden I am back to back to normal uh, within three weeks.
1: Yeah, and it's something we see across all the World Tour guys now, and everyone with their Tour de France prep is choosing to just spend more and more time at altitude. It's um, we haven't done a, a episode on this podcast pure in altitude yet because there's so much to cover it's, but i'm sure yeah I'm i don't
2: i don't want to i don't want to open it up it's 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 a super long discussion yeah and it's been super interesting to for me to to experiment now i've spent two years up there uh i can really use it as a tool uh but it can also be detrimental to um i think the important point
3: to distinguish when it gets into either heat acclimation or altitude training is just making the distinction between are you doing this acclimation so that you can perform better in that condition or are you doing that acclimation in order to, to perform better in a uh, either a normoxic situation or thermoneutral situation that's where the debate is kind of in, in the literature right now but yeah we don't need to get deep in into that at all but um That is always kind of, if you do get into that conversation, it's always good to kind of note which one of those two aspects you're talking about. But that is really interesting that how quickly your fitness pops back after you do that type of
2: training. Yeah, I mean, I can answer it pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, I could answer it really in a really long way, but basically this season, uh, I would do three week block in Andorra up to 2000 meters where I was doing mostly base training. I would hardly touch over threshold. Uh, and then I would do three weeks or two weeks back down in Girona, uh, where I would do my, my high intensity training, my, my real race efforts to to really uh, sharpen up for the races. And then that would also be, uh, heat acclimatization also yeah, gonna because the races were going to be hot. Yeah. So, uh i kind of get the the aerobic boost of being up uh, at altitude doing my base training which is perfect my aerobic efficiency and then i come down to sea level and i also get my heat and climatization and i also sharpen up and i can go really hard and then i come to the races and that's for me it's worked perfectly this year
3: i i don't know if you have any other anything else there, saris but i'm actually well
1: the thing i was gonna say uh ask quickly is there's so much contact there with your coach that sets your training how much are you having with other staff so whether it's nutritionist or doctor or someone that's working on aerodynamics like are you touching base with these guys at all during the year or is it if you don't have any problems you don't talk to them kind of thing
2: uh they're always checking in and asking if everything's all right, if you've got any questions. So for example, a nutritionist, just checking in with guys asking, uh, yeah, how's how's the weight going? How's like the relationship with food? Uh, are you eating enough on the bike? Can you record, uh, for this hard training session? Can you make sure that you're getting a hundred grams an hour, uh, only through liquids because that's what you're going to yeah. be doing in the races. So tra- train your gut. And then also, unfortunately for me, I had a lot of contact with, uh, the team doctor this year, uh, David yeah. Castro. We have a few team doctors. Um, but yeah, this year I had to, I don't, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I had two big crashes this year, uh, where I broke seven or eight bones. So unfortunately, uh, I had a lot of checkups here in Gerona with David Castro. who would come in from Barcelona and, and do all my bandages, make sure that, uh, the concussion test was done. Uh, I spent a lot of time with David. <laughs> uh, we were yeah. best buds by the end of it. Uh, But, yeah, like we have access. We have as much access to everyone as possible, but we also can do our own thing. At the end of the day, you're responsible for your performance. Uh, So if you think it's going fine and the way that you're doing the process is going well with with your coach, then it's great. Uh, But if you need a few tips and help in the right direction with with whatever it is, uh, then you have the contact there. Um,
1: And so, yeah, obviously it sounds pretty good like the that kind of setup and it's kind of what we discussed what we thought it was at a lot of the world tour teams obviously we'll find out more as we get more guests on about whether it translates but is there anything that you sort of see that's flawed in the EF setup like uh, obviously you don't have to name any names (laughs) during this but um, is there anything that you think yeah, it could be done better or there's things that you know other teams are doing that you think, Geez, I wish we had that.
2: Well, the most important thing to stress with the F is that they're quite uh relaxed with how they overlook all their athletes. Uh and I think that works really well for the yeah. athletes that they have. Athletes are aware that when they sign with the F that uh it's not a super like uh robotic setup where, you know, this is what he does and it's it's really like military style uh super refined yeah not not to, i
3: don't want to take a dig yeah at a team or anything yeah. like that i'll just speak to this in general but the way i look at a lot of that stuff is uh, uh, but i mean i could micromanage an athlete but I, I have to like be aware of my own ignorance about something and you can have you, you i don't know a lot of things i think um you have to say well how much evidence do i really have to push this athlete athlete in this way and and hold them to this specific thing and if you only have like one or two papers backing it up or some anecdotes which would be even worse um then yeah you should probably just lay off and maybe let the athlete do what they want to do or need to do to kind of keep their head space so yeah that, that i mean there's those two approaches and even, you know, being the science guy here, I wouldn't want to ever be the the science guy that micromanages uh, an athlete.
2: Yeah, I know, for, for example, with, with my coach, Nate, he, he knows everything about the science and he knows why to this specifics as to why I'm doing this session and like the lead up to a race, why it's all kind of intertwined. But he also understands that different athletes need different processes to get them ready for races, whether that's a super refined process where he's basically they do every, uh, like the exact session is, is always perfectly executed. And then they go straight home, no extra K's, uh, for some athletes that works really well, but there's also other athletes that kind of need to be less overlooked. Uh, and they kind of do their thing. And then he also just points them in the right direction. And some athletes work better like that. So he's, he's kind of, uh, yeah micromanaging micromanaging some some athletes but then there's also some athletes like myself who uh he just overlooks and is like a consultant in a way which is the uh, the, and then gives the sessions
0: yeah it's the interesting dynamic when a team coach is kind of assigned athletes and they get all these different personalities versus in another way coaches people approach coaches because they appeal to their personalities like Mm -hmm. i've been a team coach before and some people just don't want to be coached yeah they just reject it Mm -hmm. yeah uh so you if it's compulsory, you just got to find a way to work out between you, I guess.
2: I mean, that's where it's good having six or seven coaches within the team. They've all got different styles. So you can actually, each coach has their own different style. So you can kind of fit into what they think will be best for that athlete. So it's pretty rare for a coach not to be getting along well with the athlete and vice versa. And so one In the, yeah. would,
0: would request to move, like change coaches at any point?
2: You, can, you could request to change coaches at the end of the season uh, whenever, whenever you wanted. At the end of the day, uh, the athlete is responsible for the athlete's mm-hmm. performance. And if they think that uh, a change of coach will be beneficial and they've heard from other riders that you know, they do this training and they think that maybe this will work better for them next season, then for sure the team's supportive of that. Uh, maybe another team is not so much, but at EF, yes.
0: Is Nate in charge of overlooking everyone else, all the coaches? Like, he's, he, he's the director of performance or sports science?
2: No, so he's just uh, an in-house coach, and then he's also, uh, I can't remember his exact term within the team, but he's just a high-performance coach, which is the same as all the other coaches. So he's not overlooking the other coaches' training or anything. Uh, we have Charlie Wigelius, who's the head race director, who, who overlooks uh, all, the, all the coaches and, and within that all the athletes' training.
0: Okay. Is is there any um yeah. like standard way that the coaches are coaching? Like, is it driven from above, or or really they just individually coach the way that they normally would?
2: It's all individual, yeah, uh, yeah. The thing is, with with different athletes from different nations, uh, different upbringings, a lot like the train the training varies so much. It's it's crazy. It's difficult to explain. Uh, some some athletes will be doing uh, thirty five hours a week with Heaps of intensity, and then there's some athletes that will be lucky to scrape t- on average twenty hours a week, but with mm-hmm. heaps of intensity. Uh, and yeah, it all it all changes depending on what the athlete Which is wants.
0: The the dynamics, uh, the difference between a cycling team and a soccer team, for example, it's like the the races that people doing, the individual responses to training, the types of riders they are. There's so much variation, I guess that it has to be like.
2: And one thing to stress also, some riders will will race a lot, so they actually don't need to train much. They just have to recover from the race, freshen up for the next one, whereas there's some riders that will have a big gap in race programs, and so they really do need to put a big training block in. So, yeah, that also gets interesting too. So there's often the coaches are just uh, making sure that they're healthy, recovering from the racing that they've been doing, uh, and then getting ready for the next one. And there's also some athletes who uh, won't have a specific race program where it's always changing because people get injured people get sick and then they get cold in and so yeah that also is a different dynamic so uh yeah it's super complicated
0: (laughs) how about how about you how did you how did you adjust to that thing of having to prepare while racing like the change between nrs or just having time to build perfect builds and then being thrown into this crazy chaotic world how did you handle that change of Um, preparing while doing all these races and things
2: yeah uh, this was super stressful personally for me uh it was it's a good question It was probably one of the biggest changes that i had to make as an athlete uh obviously back in australia uh i was running my own show and i could just say okay i have this race in three months and i could try to prepare it perfectly i'd have no interruptions i'd have no travel uh yeah and then i come across to to the world tour and then all of a sudden you know you're out training you're thinking that you're going to race in a month and they would be like hey jimmy uh such and such is sick you have to race in two days uh you're going to dubai to race the uae tour and so you just have to be like okay this isn't the perfect setup but i'm healthy i'm ready to go and i'll use uh, the opportunities that the races to learn this was in my first year and this is better than training anyway so i'd have to enjoy the process and uh Yeah, I know in my Neo Pro year, I had a lot of these situations where I thought I was doing this race, but I'd come across and do a different one a few weeks earlier. Uh,
1: Also, I remember in your first year too, when you came out to Europe, I think you got stuck moving house in the first week you came over and said that was like something you hadn't factored in at all. And then all of a sudden you spend a week barely being able to train because it actually takes a lot longer to move all your shit into a different place than you planned. And just little things like that about living on the other side of the world as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's like uh yeah my situation in australia was super dialed i had no external stresses uh yeah like i didn't even have to buy my own food my parents Mm -hmm. were organizing everything the fridge restocked by itself so (laughs) i had to i had to really grow up and you have to really get good at getting thrown around and not stressing about it Uh, because the stress getting stressed over it was the worst thing yeah that was the fastest way to lose form was to not be relaxed yeah. and to get stressed over, over things that you couldn't control. Uh,
1: I think that's a big thing that we've talked about in episodes with any kind of preparation for races and things like warm-ups is if it's at the point where you have your, your week leading up to a race and everything has to go right in your head and that has to happen before every race or you can't perform, then you're already setting yourself up for disaster because as once you hit that level and you're just getting thrown around and there's so much that happens that's out of your control, you're never going to have that perfect week lead into a race. Um, Even if it's a grand tour, like you're just going to have some nightmare of some scheduling or yeah, all of these things sort of pop up that if you're not able to adapt and cope without being stressed out, then you're really going to struggle to perform.
2: Yeah. I think uh, professional cyclists, uh are incredibly good at just controlling the controllables and and still being a high performing athlete even within this sport it's it's nowhere near the ideal situation to be a professional athlete but everyone's in the same boat and the best athletes that are performing at the highest level are really really good at not getting stressed over these situations and uh i mean i've had some of my best races where i've had some of the most unideal prep and so it just teaches you not to get stressed. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good – It's and, and I think for this, I'm a, I'm a better athlete, but also uh, beyond cycling, I'll, I'll be a better person for it. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It is a super high-stress environment, and I always sort of – there's always that time where you're like at an airport and your bike hasn't shown up the night before a race or things like that, and you think, why am I doing this? Mm. This is crazy. I've put all this work in. But then I sort of just think, well – if i if I wanted a nine to five desk job I could take it and not be stressed, but that's just part of the lifestyle and part of racing at this high level is being in that pressure cooker environment mm. and having all of this shit going on all of the time but yeah that's just part of the sport
2: yeah yeah i always um I always say to myself like uh lifestyle choices you know you chose to be here it's pretty amazing what you're doing pull your head in uh and just roll with it. Yeah,
3: yep. this is a good add-on to our amateur to pro podcast that we did a few months ago, I think. Yeah. So this is actually a really good yeah, yeah. Uh, complimentary conversation. That, so appreciate that. It's, uh, the, in, the kind of yep. added insight that's really um, kind of informing and giving real real world experience around what we were discussing in that conversation. So.
0: I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show. A show where we aim to provide you with content that is thought-provoking, well-researched, and practical. If you find value in the show, it would mean a lot to us if you shared the show with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life. Also if you want help with your cycling performance beyond our show we would love to help you you may have guessed that my co-hosts and i offer coaching services for cyclists but you may not know that we also offer consulting services for cycling coaches and teams so whether you're after additional guidance in training principles insights into technologies and analysis techniques assistance with heat acclimation help developing from an amateur to a pro or any other topic related to cycling performance. Our goal is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance pursuits. So definitely check us out online or contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. And with that, let's get back into it.
3: I have a a kind of a nerdy kind of conversation and I, I actually wanted to let this go for a little bit, because this is really interesting to me. But one thing that I kind of want to get back to the runner to cyclist transition a little bit, because I've had a few questions around that. And I know in an earlier episode, I, I mentioned there was a, a runner that was at Eastern Michigan University, and they used to bring all their cross country runners in because it's collegiate there, right? And so they'd bring in the collegiate runners, they were on scholarship or whatever, and they do all this testing. And they had one of them that came in and it had a VO2 max of over 80 right and this is one of my colleagues that tested him and i asked i was like holy cows is he like the fastest guy on the team and he says no because he runs like a cow i don't know if you remember that conversation cyrus or not so but the interesting thing was where this guy actually really excelled was was when the conditions at the cross-country course were really nasty and muddy in that. I don't know how popular cross-country is for you guys. I don't know if you're always on the track or if you do cross-country, but cross-country is a big thing in the U.S. And so a good runner isn't necessarily always going to be a good cyclist, I think, because there's such a huge biomechanical component of running that you could have someone with an okay threshold and and, an okay... VO2 Max, but their biomechanics are just spot on and they're super efficient or economical, I think. And they can just run with very, very little energy. Hmm. And that runner for me, if I was going to place bets, wouldn't be the guy that I would see transferring over to the bike to this, right? And so I'm just kind of looking to have a conversation around this about, you know, have you ever done a VO2 Max test when you were a runner? Do you have a, a kind of a feel? Out of the kind of three components that would make a good runner, uh, biomechanics, lactate threshold, or VIA2 max, those things would all kind of be together. Um, what do you think physiologically transferred over for you from running to the bike? I don't want to push you on the spot too much.
2: No, no, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, people, people are always talking about this because they say, why are runners coming across into cycling doing so well? Which is basically these three factors uh it's hard to pinpoint i know i've done a vo2 max every year since 2014 Mm -hmm. at the same at the same Mm -hmm. institute so it's consistent the Mm -hmm. numbers legit uh and when i was a runner i could get a higher vo2 i don't know whether that's because it was a full Mm -hmm. body workout and i was also super light too yeah. So obviously, the lighter you are, yeah, the higher your VO2 yep. goes up significantly.
1: Yeah, relative VO2
2: max is going to go up.
3: But um, so so you're all are you still always doing the running when you go back to that institute? Or have they switched you over to the bike just because you're a cyclist now?
2: No, yeah. So that was so the first two years it was through running, and then all the other years have been mm-hmm. on the bike. Uh, and I've always scored around 79, and then the highest was That's 84. Right? Uh, I'd say my average is around 82. Okay. Uh, but, that, but the thing that would influence it the most was the issue on the bike is that in December, I'm still kind of coming off the off-season. So maybe I'm not as light as I normally am. And if I was running at race weight, then my VO2 would be mm-hmm. super high. So that's the only issue with this calculation is that my recording of my vo2 would be done in december if i did it in july during the cycling season it would be mm-hmm. interesting to see yeah. what it would be that's a good note for all cyclists
1: is most of the testing happens at the end of the off season because mm-hmm. that's that's when people have time to get into yeah. In to, yeah exactly so it's not actually going to show the the best numbers for most cyclists at the time yeah
3: yeah because they're either doing it in the beginning so i would imagine also that because in, in the cycling sense your training ages a bit younger than probably like Cyrus, right? Even though you guys are similar in age Um, and you could potentially be seeing an increase in VO2 max simply because you're training age and you're still kind of molding into a cyclist, right? So that'll be an interesting transformation for you. And I don't really have an idea of, you know, there's probably just a diminishing return, but there's, you know, that exponential growth at first and then you're gonna kind of taper off and it'd be interesting to kind of look at the absolute numbers around that too so if your absolute vo2 max is changing and increasing over this time just because you're becoming a better cyclist and able to put out a higher vo2 max as a cyclist because the vo2 max is between a runner and cyclist if you're untrained or only trained as a, as a runner then your vo2 max should be higher as a runner But supposedly, at some point, if you are trained as a cyclist, your VO2 max, because they usually don't call it a VO2 max in cycling, they call it a VO2 peak. But there is, I think, good evidence to show that once you get very highly trained as a cyclist, that you can consider it at a VO2 max because um, that's just what happens, I guess, with highly trained people. So what I'm guessing is like the the mid-distance pro that would have probably runner that would have stayed in australia versus the 80 plus vo2 max in racing world tour level you sound a lot to me you sound a lot like that that runner from from ecu that got tested right like you probably had a decent biomechanics and then like the bo- the bike was just waiting for you i think yeah that's my opinion I, yeah so
2: I've, i'm really happy to see yeah. that you made the switch yeah, I, mean, <laughs> uh, I honestly I, I don't know the answer to it but I can't pinpoint I can't pinpoint anything. If anything, the biggest thing that I brought across from my running into my cycling was just the, the motivation and the the processes that I brought across from running that I learned from running and my enjoyment of training and improving myself was probably the best thing that I brought across to to cycling. Uh essentially what I was doing as a runner when I was uh in year eleven at school is the exact I'm still the exact same person, but just on the bike. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is I think a good thing. Yeah,
3: I didn't want to kind of um, downplay your your running career because obviously you got injured. So who knows if you would have just kept developing to this yeah. level, either as a as a runner? Um, do do you think, looking back do 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 you think you would have had a preference if you could have chosen which way you would have gone? Do you think you? I mean, does does the cycling lifestyle fit fit you better than what you think the running world would have gone with?
2: When I hurt my Achilles and stopped running, I thought it was the end of the world. Like, uh, mm-hmm. but now that I look back at it, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, yeah, yeah.
3: And awesome. I'm
2: definitely a better bike rider than I was a runner. That's for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, but maybe, yeah. but maybe I, I never like trained at that high level. I never applied that super high level of training and running like I have in cycling now. So maybe, mm-hmm. who knows? But. I'm glad that I'm here today, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think a lot of cyclists have that idea because performance in cycling is at such a high level compared to many sports. I always just think back, like, if I did this level of training and this level of attention in another sport, would I have got further than cycling? And you obviously, they're just massive what-ifs, like you you never know. But the the average level of focus on performance in cycling is just so high when you look at what other top level sports people are doing so yeah for for us all of us are, are working in high performance here like the that is really good because it's it's putting coaches in jobs it's putting that emphasis on human performance and how far you can get yourself and what you can achieve which i think is something our sport has that many others don't have or aren't at the same level yet
2: it's it's a it's something that I try to explain to runners is this. It's the fact that in cycling, everything is quantifiable more or less, uh, which is incredible because in running, it's really difficult to kind of the, like the only metric you have is, is how fast you're running Mm -hmm. and how fast you can get to the finish line. Everything else is kind of a bit of a guessing game. And so, yeah, the, the high performance in cycling because of the power meter and everything, it's super, super interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I got pretty obsessed with it when I first came across the cycling. Uh, <laughs> a healthy obsession. I was super <laughs> passionate about it. Because uh, finally, yeah.
3: Um, I just have a couple pre-packaged questions I'm keen to ask the pros that come on here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what's your favorite interval session?
2: Five by fives. <laughs> 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 Why do you say why do you say that? Because that probably is pretty close to <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, it's like the internal, it's the it's the inside joke like, that's been running through the podcast for a while.
1: Every example of an interval session is just a five by five. Yeah.
2: Well, the reason why I say this is because one, I enjoy it and I can do it easily, and like I, I punch a good number. But uh, also, like as as an Australian, we have our nationals course. It's five to six minute berg and yeah like you yeah, kind of when i first time started time. Ride, riding that was like i did that session so many times that it's kind of like my honey hole and it just brings me back to the good old times of getting ready for aussie nats a few years ago, ago. uh but if another session that i really enjoy is just like thirty thirties.
3: what uh, is what exactly is that how do you guys describe that because you you were talking about the forty forties and thirty thirties before cyrus so for the, so for the interval expert here that doesn't know the thirty says. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like it might be pil- it might be compiled in with a if another set of intervals, but it'd be like two sets of ten minutes where I do thirty seconds out of the saddle, maybe at like 550, 600, and then you settle back into the saddle, high cadence at three hundred, uh, and you can get a really good number actually doing that. Yeah uh, for 10 minutes. But, uh, yeah, I just really enjoy that effort. You can go really deep and, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It gets the endorphins going. I would, I would call yeah. those like on-offs or something like that I think I have
3: something similar like anaerobic yeah. capacity workouts or something. Yeah. Um, least favorite interval session.
2: Uh, my least favorite interval session is sitting just on the threshold. Uh, like when I'm in Andorra, uh, and I haven't acclimatized to the altitude and I have to do three by 30 minutes at say three thirty Watts and it's it should feel easy, mm. but it doesn't, that's my least favorite. Uh, and yeah, that, the further you ride, the higher the altitude gets. So it actually gets more and more uncomfortable, mm. but, uh, yeah, that's probably my least favorite. Uh, I just like enjoying going easy or really, really hard. But this is, over the last few years, what I've trained the most is, yeah, that aerobic efficiency uh, in high zone three, which has taken some uh, discipline to do. Uh,
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then another canned question here for you is, um, obviously from the environmental physiology guy, what harsh weather condition do you think you can handle the best and which one do you think you can handle, though, is the, the toughest for you to handle? So
2: adverse, like hot, altitude, cold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm really good in the heat. Yeah. Cyrus and I have probably clocked like 20 hours mm-hmm. in the sauna together over our careers. Uh, but uh, yeah, the heat's definitely my strong point. I mean, a lot of a lot of Aussies will say that. Are the two of you, who's better in the heat?
1: In the heat or in the sauna?
2: <laughs>
3: like right, racing or in the sauna? So, yeah. Who's better in the heat when you're racing?
1: Probably pretty know. similar,
3: I'd say. We're both pretty good, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't think either of us really get affected by the heat, so most of our results. Do you guys weigh about the same? Would be, yeah, pretty similar. Yeah. i would be yeah. a little bit.
3: So I would, I would, better, I would, for for I would sure. base, I would, I would guess that Jimmy would be better, but if you guys would think it's similar,
2: yeah, it makes more sense. But the more, but the thing, thing is, it's not serious. it's not because. Uh, I was naturally born better in the heat. Uh, we both just train the heat a lot. So I can spend three weeks in Andorra in a cold block and I will be hopeless in the heat when I come back down to Girona. But then I spend two weeks riding in the heat, doing saunas or hot baths and uh, I'll switch straight back to uh, being pretty comfy comfy at 40 degrees
3: yeah. and going hard. Actually, that gets into an interesting conversation because this is one of the... I designed research around this, but I never actually got to do it. But I have had people approach me asking about, well, should we actually do cold acclimation to kind of help with that initial um, shock to the system of going from the Australian summer into the European cold? Have you ever had any issues around that?
2: Yeah. Uh, So, for example, last year, I did a heat block getting ready for the tour of Poland, which was going to be really hot. And then I had a three-week training period, and then I had the Duro, which was going to be super cold. And so I went up to Andorra after Poland and basically rode in the cold rain up at altitude for three weeks. And the first week, I was really, really poor at riding in the cold and going hard and recovering and also just hitting the clients with cold Mm -hmm. legs. Uh, My body wasn't used to it, but then by the end, uh, my body was used to it. And it was again, it just gets comfortable in that stress. Uh, Your body, like one thing I've learned is – your body will adapt to whatever element you train mm-hmm. it in, mm-hmm. so yep. uh, like people will say in La Vuelta, uh like for example, people were surprised that Magnus Kort Nielsen was riding so well in the heat because he's Danish, yeah,
1: and odd Christian Iking as well being from the top of Norway but like
2: yeah, same thing, but they they just acclimatize to their their training conditions, and he trains here in Andorra in Spain, which is similar to me, and he does heat stress mm-hmm. stuff, so yeah. Uh, but that was yeah. You can not train for the cold. Uh, the jury was super cold, and I was all right nice. in the cold. I wasn't exceptional, yeah. but uh, I was limiting my losses. Good for yeah. a guy from
3: Melbourne. <laughs> um, yeah, just last best and worst advice you have ever gotten from a coach or a mentor in the sport. You, you <laughs> could go, you can go to running too if you want. But like, was I just I, people are always like, what's the best advice? I'm like, no, what's the worst advice? What's the thing that like messed with your head the most? so that the coaches that listen know when to keep their mouth shut maybe sometimes <laughs> just, i just i'm interested to hear a
2: little bit of that oh, sometimes the worst advice is if someone says you can't do something but then yeah. that's the best advice because you end up getting super motivated mm-hmm. to do it oh yeah uh, that works for some people and then some people it doesn't like, yeah but yeah i can see how that like within the team i this year when i crashed and broke my jaw and a few other things in will A lot of people said that's the end of your season like uh but i Mm -hmm. refuse to accept that so i guess that's bad advice and then you could flip it on its head and then uh turn it into something that's motivating but i've I've never really been given horrible advice yeah which is good yeah lucky (laughs) you're lucky Uh, yeah but you just need to realize but but it's it's still really bad advice is still is still really good advice if you know that it's (laughs) bad (laughs) yeah Does, yeah. this, does this make yeah. sense? Like uh, you need you need to understand the bad commentary with the the good commentary. Yeah, we talk
1: about this a lot because, with the critical thinking. Like you can get information from yeah, absolutely yeah. everywhere yeah. now. Like there's no shortage of information out there, but being able to assess what's good and what's bad is what is super important. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like working out some of the best examples uh, that'll put you in the right direction is examples of how not to do something. Yeah. Uh, not just how to do something.
1: Yeah, and I think because you've been in the sport for such a short amount of time, you have to learn to get to where you are. You've had to learn from other people's mistakes rather than just your own because if you'd been making all of the mistakes yourself, you'd still be racing crits in in Melbourne, whereas you've been able to sort of look at what other people have done wrong and think, right, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead to sort of bypass all of
2: these little hiccups in the road.
3: Do we have any other questions? If you got anything for us, questions Put you on the spot again here.
2: Uh, I've got a question. What do you think the best way to approach an off season is? Cause so many, so many riders, so many, so many people do it differently right now in the off season. So,
1: well, we did do a, an episode on, on this, on rest periods and, I think this is just completely person dependent as well. I've, I've changed this throughout. Like I used to never have an off season cause I liked riding my bike so much. I still like riding my bike a lot, but I think I've realized the importance of some balance and doing some other things and more just, yeah, taking out the structure as it sounds like you've been doing, but like, I think it's fine to ride your bike if you like riding your bike and there's it's important from a physiology perspective to note that you don't need a rest period. Like that's sort of a myth that we've talked about a few times here that people think that you need to have the time off and build back up that from a physiological point of view, that doesn't actually make sense. Like you, you, but it's not like your body can't run for 12 months of the year. It has to only run for 11, but it's more a mental side of things of, okay, I'm having the break now from the structure and the regimented lifestyle and being able to enjoy some things that you can't do throughout the season yeah. yeah
3: and well first of all i was just listening to i gotta give credit where credit's due i was listening to a podcast with greg hoff pretty well very well accomplished uh, strength and conditioning researcher in that and he he said there's no such thing as an off season you're always kind of training right so it's kind of a, it's a misnomer in a sense but for me is the, the the most important thing is to just get your head straight yeah because tr- becoming being a professional athlete is very tough to do and so i think it was finding that balance between getting your head straight and then not becoming a total slob
1: one thing um that i was yeah gonna say with that is it's uh yeah for me personally in the off season as well a lot Uh, harder to relax now because yeah I'm in the position of trying to manage finding somewhere to race next year like manage contracts and that kind of stuff and as yeah Jimmy was saying before the stress of like any kind of stress just prevents recovery and being able to prepare for what's next so like that kind of stuff is obviously not ideal and you'd prefer to just yeah be able to chill out and do that kind of thing but yeah the stress of trying to find a ride for next year the stress of trying to get back home these kind of things they're things that also prevent actually being able to recover and chill out so if you can actually prioritize the mental space and try and take away as many of those stresses as possible that's going to be the most important thing about enjoying the time away from competition
3: yeah and actually kind of runs into a question i had for you jimmy was um when do you think you would start ramping it up
2: uh yeah so my last bike ride was october the 9th uh, no the 8th october the 8th and i was in lombardia and i don't think i'll i went to a ride until the start of november so that's uh three weeks but that's that's more or less the recommended minimum uh for an off-season uh, but there'll still be guys that'll be riding the gravel bike, riding the mountain no. bike here and there just to to exercise a little bit because you still have to... Yeah, I think doing nothing for three yeah. weeks is not good for you.
1: And also people uh, just like riding their bikes. <laughs> That's yeah. often why people are professional cyclists.
2: <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've got to strip yeah. it back and remember why, yeah. And it's important to tap into that because otherwise you spend mm-hmm. the whole yeah. the whole season just uh, yeah. always chasing a session, always chasing form. You're not actually... Just enjoying riding. So it's also an opportunity just to enjoy riding for once.
3: I think it's really important for athletes to be able to train with autonomy again. Not so much an off season where you're not doing any training, but just being able to ride your bike how you would have before you had a coach or before you went pro and just kind of ride how you want to ride. Do you want to go out and do a five hour ride with some hard efforts here and go? Do you want to just ride to the coffee shop? Do you, you know to have? The training where you have autonomy over what, what you are going to do, the coach kind of just sits back and looks at things.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I know a lot of my teammates, they will be currently going through their off season, uh, and they will resume their their bike riding at different times. Mm. But a lot of them will be in a similar process in that their coaches won't really check in with them until they start feeling fit on the bike again. So a lot of them will say, okay. Start riding your bike around this week if you feel like it. Uh, check in in two weeks' time once you actually feel like you can ride a bike for a decent amount of period and not uh, like once you start feeling like an athlete again. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they start talking about training and and then you're you're into the pre-season work. Uh, and then well, yeah, once it comes around Christmas time, the, the training is pretty pretty serious by then. I think one thing that's that's definitely changed is uh, over the last like the the race directors will say this, the, uh, over the last five years, the training has become a lot more serious, a lot earlier into the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know why that is, but uh, for sure, a big factor of that is the calendar is starting a lot earlier now. Mm-hmm. And also the pressure is on right at the start of the year. You can't, you can't do races now, like, you can't train in races now. You have to be ready at the race. Uh, one, because they're they're too hard. And, and two, you have to perform if you're on the start line. It's just a proper high-pressure, high-performance professional sport now. So if you're at the UAE Tour in, in, in February, you've, you've got to be rolling pretty well.
0: We ended the interview without thanking Jimmy for jumping on and talking to us. So I'm recording this just now as I'm editing the show. And having a listen through again, I just wanted to make a quick comment with some takeaways I got from our chat. We talk about having the right info and making the best decisions about training. And it seems to me from the speed of Jimmy's progression through the ranks, he was able to find the right people and information while also avoiding the mistakes that can prolong each phase of development. Obviously, he has the talent But he also took an interest in his own performance, taking responsibility for his progress from the start, but here also willing to take advice when needed. And this seems to be continuing today as he explained the process of getting back from his serious setbacks this year. These are really important lessons for anyone listening. I certainly will be taking them on board. So thanks, Jimmy, and thank you to my co-hosts for this episode. And to wrap up here, I'd just like to say you can support the show by considering products from our sponsors or simply recommending the show to a fellow cycling performance nerd. It really does help a lot. Thanks, and we're back next week with another pro cyclist guest.